one of mine. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey everyone, I'm excited to tell you about another way that you can connect with the Wondermind world. If your inbox is toxic, like most of ours, I think you're going to enjoy this. Dealing with the roller coaster that is being a human with emotions is not easy, but when we open up about what's on our minds, we learn that we're not alone. That's why, together with my co-founders Mandy Teefy and Selena Gomez, we created Wondermind. With honest conversations and expert advice, the Wondermind newsletter has your roadmap for overcoming stigma, shifting your mindset, and helping you feel supported. Go to wondermind.com to sign up for free and receive actionable and relatable mental fitness content to your inbox every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And the newsletter has exclusive content that you won't be able to find on the site. So get it first and sign up for our newsletter, wondermind.com. Hi, and welcome to the Business of Feelings. I'm Daniela Pearson, co-founder and co-CEO of Wondermind, the first of its kind mental fitness ecosystem focused on breaking the stigma surrounding mental health. In this weekly podcast, I sit down with those who have risen the ranks of the business world in a range of industries and discuss something that's often not talked about, their feelings. As an entrepreneur myself with a history of mental health struggles, I know firsthand how important it is to have these conversations and let others know that they are not alone. We all have our own mental health journeys, and it's time we talk about them. Andy, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Business of Feelings podcast for Wondermind. You have been one of the only very high profile founders that has been very authentic and vocal with your mental health struggles, which is not common in the business world and is seen as highly taboo. And so I really want, in your own words, for anybody who for some reason doesn't know the name Andy Dunn or the brand Bonobos or Pumpkin Pie or the book Burn Rate, could you please tell our audience who you are and why mental health is so important to you? I'm Andy Dunn. I am back in my hometown, which is Chicago. Missing New York a great deal. I was there for 15 years. And while I was there, I got to build a brand called Bonobos. We sold and sell a lot of pants. So I sometimes say I was a pant salesman, half Indian on my mom's side, half Scandinavian American on my dad's side. And over the last two years have been focused on 
two things. One is building a new company, which is called Pumpkin Pie. It's like Tinder, but for platonic friendship. And really aimed at curing the loneliness epidemic and social isolation. And that ties into my passion, which is mental health and mental fitness. And uh, I wrote a book in that vein called Burn Rate. The subtitle is Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind. And it is about a 16-year closeted journey I went on with a severe mental illness called bipolar disorder type 1. It's a really unforgiving, cruel, challenging mood disorder. And it is also absolutely navigable with treatment, with therapy, with medication, with love. And so I'm happy to say I've been mentally fit now for six years and have a little baby boy and an incredible wife and wanted to share this story to first expunge the shame that I felt for too long about having a mental illness and also hopefully to provide at least one tiny story about how we can overcome this shit. Well, thank you so much for that amazing introduction because the reason why I wanted you on is because I really wanted to have somebody who had a household name that they founded and started because being an entrepreneur in the startup world, VC capital, is very, very anxiety-inducing. When I was 19 starting my first company, it would be all of these middle-aged men like looking super tough and they would say, you know, no emotion in business. And so certainly as a 20-something Latina woman with OCD and ADHD, I was certainly not going to broadcast my mental illness to the world. And in your book and in other interviews that you've done, you've mentioned that your family and people that were mentoring you essentially told you to put that part of your life in a pocket and zip it up and never look at it again while you were running this company. And so how did it feel First of all, to start a business having bipolar, which can really be debilitating, but then also what is it like being told by people that you trusted and that you looked up to, to kind of hide it and not seek help? I'd love to tell you that I had an awareness of what I was getting into with starting a company and having bipolar one. The truth is that When I was diagnosed, I was 20 years old. I was a senior in college. And those words, bipolar disorder, when I heard them, just hit me like a sledgehammer. First, the word disorder, which is a scary word. Does that mean I'm therefore disorderly? Is there something fundamentally disorderly about me? And then the word bipolar, which is just a scary word. And I learned that You've got these two extremes, mania and depression. The mania can be debilitating, psychosis. You end up hospitalized or institutionalized. It could come back at any point. It could be two weeks. It could be 20 years. So that's terrifying. It feels like having a bomb in your brain where you're going to go through this humiliation of losing your mind in front of your loved ones or strangers. Typically, it's accompanied by messianic delusions of grandeur all kinds of stuff that feels amazing while you're going through it. And then on the flip side of it is really humiliating. And then on the other side, the depression, learning that the suicide attempt rate for bipolar one is 60% and the suicide rate is 19%. So 
you know, one day you're a 20 year old kid who thinks that the world is their oyster. And the next day you've got this thing and it's hanging over you. And by the way, there's a one in five chance that you're going to end your own life. You're only 20 years old. And now you're thinking about these weighty concepts. And so the natural thing one does when presented with that is to reject it. It's not true. And partly because you're hearing it when you're coming down from a psychotic episode. So you're not necessarily in the best state of mind to process a diagnosis either. And so I just didn't believe that I had it because I rejected the diagnosis. We, as a whole family, actually found a way to tell ourselves a story, which is that it was related to some mescaline psilocybin use from three weeks earlier. Uh, I was a senior in college. I was drinking a lot, smoking a lot of pot. And for the first time, I tried mushrooms with some friends. And so there was a narrative that we constructed, which is that it must have been the mushrooms that had caused the episode, that otherwise this wouldn't have happened. And therefore, the diagnosis was not accurate. And so when seven years later, I started with a friend, co-founded Bonobos, it wasn't in the top of my mind because it was really a recessed, pushed down, Mm -hmm. traumatic memory. Thank you for being so vulnerable with that. When you and your parents said, you know, oh, it must have been the drug use, did you secretly know in the back of your mind, did you really believe that narrative? I believed it at the time. I wanted to have a reason to believe that I didn't have this illness. And I think one of the hard things about the word bipolar is that we tend to say, and I hear it to this day all the time, that so-and-so is bipolar. And the truth is that the analogy would be to say that so-and-so is cancer. We would never say that. Someone isn't cancer. They have it. In the same way that we have bipolar, we are not it. But we equate the identity with the illness, the idea that you actually now are your illness. And so if you're going from a world where you were you, you know, last week, but now you are an illness, you are bipolar, you are the disorder. It's a natural thing to reject it. It didn't really dawn on me that I might actually have the illness until I started facing depression in a really meaningful way about a decade later while I was building bonobos while I was building a startup. And I started to have months at a time where I didn't want to get out of bed, where I would be asleep all weekend, where I didn't have the energy to live. I didn't have hope, having suicidal ideation. And I felt like I couldn't share it with anyone. I didn't have a channel open. You also had a lot of people depending on you. (laughs) I did in the role of an entrepreneur. And it's not the only role that's like this, but you're on display. You're on display for your team every day, and you're meant to project optimism and a contagious positive energy to draw people in. And the truth is that on the flip side of the mood spectrum, shy of psychosis, there is a mood state called hypomania. And hypomania is basically highly energetic, contagious positive energy, prodigious amounts of energy in terms of being able to get things done speaking a little more quickly, perhaps a little bit of distractibility or irritability, feistiness when disagreed with, more or less the central casting traits of an entrepreneur. And so there was (laughs) one mood state where it was like jet fuel. And then another mood state on the flip side, the depressive side, where I felt like I couldn't do the job at all. I had to hide it from everyone. Mm -hmm. And so it was only as I was experiencing the depressive side that I had a little voice creeping up, which I describe as a ghost, 
that was like, okay, wait a second. Empirically, I knew I had had a manic episode when I was 20. Now I'm experiencing depression. I know that the colloquial term for this illness is manic depression. I'm kind of two for two at this point. Because prior to that part of my life, I hadn't experienced depression. That was when it started to gnaw at me. And so that began an era where when things were really hard, when I felt like I couldn't go on, I would seek help. And at one point, I approached a mental health therapist in New York who I spent some sessions with. I had a psychiatrist who I went and saw. I had another executive coach who I had who was a former psychiatrist. I had two family doctors. Wow. All five of whom told me that they didn't think I had bipolar disorder. It was just a unfortunate thing that I received confirmation for what I hoped was true rather than the difficult truth, which is, hey, you did get diagnosed with this. You are presently symptomatic. And that probably means this is what you had, that that diagnosis is accurate. And let's now talk about what we should do about it. Instead, I found people who were willing to validate the narrative that I hoped was true that wasn't. And that turned out to be a devastating realization in 2016 when I had the second psychotic break and ended up hospitalized and charged with felony and misdemeanor assault from having been violent in the manic state. And so it's one of those things we can't rerun our lives. Yes. But I wonder sometimes if just one of those people had said, hey, let's get you help. This probably is what you're dealing with. We both have said things like Wondermind and the book that you wrote is so important because so often those kind of therapists and experts are limited to people who can afford a thousand dollar an hour sessions. And so it sounds like you were obviously in the position where you could seek help and you still did not get help. Yeah. Nine years into Bonobos, I finally connected with a doctor who's my doctor to this day, who's both a psychiatrist and a therapist, who's a psychopharmacologist who can oversee the regimen of five medications that on any given day I might need to take. Usually it's one mood stabilizer that I call like my ride or die. It helps keep me in bounds as a baseline. And then we have other medications we can use if I'm going too high or going too low to get me back. And that's been a healthy half decade. And it shouldn't be the case that we need so much money to afford this. It shouldn't be the case that the medical reimbursement rates are so low. It shouldn't be the case that it's so hard to find someone who can help you. And you know, what I wish for everyone is the care that I've received. And so for me, the step that I feel like I'm in the best position to affect and influence is that denial step at the beginning. And it's going to always be there, but let's have it be two weeks or four weeks, yeah. not 16 years, because we can't afford to be in denial of what might be an underlying reality for 16 years before we go on that journey of trying to identify mm-hmm. the right help, the right medication, the right practitioner. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you and I are both business people. And so when Selena Mandy and I started Wondermind, a lot of people said, well, why don't you start it as a charity? And the reason why I was so passionate about making it a business is 
I said, hey, maybe we could get all of our friends together and, and wealthy people and say, let's raise $50 million. But we would only be doing $50 million worth of change. If we can make this a multi-billion dollar company where all of a sudden Wall Street, VCs, private equity are like, oh, wow, mental fitness and mental health is good business, then maybe we can do what the fitness world did, where 10 years ago, the only way you could get a workout is you had to go somewhere in person, pay $40 for the class and then leave all sweaty. And now because there's been so much investment, you can have a free workout on hundreds of apps and it's all paid for by VCs and private equity. And so that's what I want. I'm hoping in five years there are people who are trying to bridge that gap between the democratization of not only knowing about, hey, I feel these things, could I potentially have bipolar and going to a doctor with that knowledge? But then in five years, hopefully there are so many other companies that are subsidizing all of these bills, etc., because they see it as good business. And so thank you for pointing out how not realistic it is for a lot of people to get that kind of help, or sometimes you don't even know what you're dealing with. A hundred percent. And I think you're right. We need corporations and investment firms to be looking at this as a good decision. It's not a charity. It is good for employee productivity. It's good for longevity. It's good for retention rates. For-profit entities that get behind this are going to do better as businesses. That's exactly the way that change happens on a large scale. It's funny you say the corporation thing. We actually are now launching a B to B to C exclusive publication just for the biggest companies in the world, similarly to how they pay for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc., so that it's a mental fitness amenity so that they can actually say we care and we're paying per person for you to have access to this content that's specifically for mental health in the workplace. And so totally agree with you on that. But I want to talk again about you. So you graduate Stanford and then you at some point meet your co-founder and you start Bonobos. What part of the first year was the hardest in terms of your mental health? Was it raising capital? Was it hiring people? Was it getting adjusted with a co-founder? What can you tell anybody who is looking to start a business and wants to know what the hardest parts were for you? I think in some ways, raising money was the best part for my mental health. It's going to sound funny because it's so hard. But the fact that I needed to raise money, the fact that there were no institutional venture capitalists or seed funds at the time in New York City that really believed in this idea of pants on the internet I didn't have the luxury of pitching firms, so I had to raise money from individuals. And I think in our first three years, we raised money from over 100 angels. We raised $8 million from over 100 people. And that probably meant that I had a 1,000 meetings to get, let's say, a 10% conversion rate. And that extroverted energy and the requirement of just three to five conversations a day was its own form of antidepressant because I had this thing to do that was bigger than me. It was so that I could keep making payroll for our developing team and it gave me a sense of purpose. And so those fundraising crises that we would be in, which was like three or four months a year for the first three years, 
that was when I was at my best because I like had to get out of bed to go to the breakfast to raise money to pay the salaries for the team. And it was exciting. It was exciting. And you start to drink your own Kool-Aid a little bit too. Just telling the story of your company and what you're trying to do, you kind of get fired up and people push back and you get defensive and they turn you down and that like gives you fuel. You're like, oh, I'm going to show you that you were wrong. The flip side of it, the thing that was the worst was the co-founder divorce that I went through and just the conflict that came from being in a really problematic interpersonal dynamic for the first time. And we were effectively married because we had raised money together and it was originally his idea and I had come in second. So I felt a real sense, like a duty of care to him. And then having a monumental falling out, I was not equipped at all for that. One of the great things that the therapist who I was seeing at the time, who, you know, she was in a bipolar disorder denialist, so that wasn't good. But she was a pretty good therapist. And one session, I remember her saying, Andy, are you in touch with anger? And I was like, anger? What's that? I've seen movies where people get angry. I've seen other people get angry, but I don't get angry. And she said, sublimated anger can manifest as depression. That really stuck with me. I still remember where she was sitting, where I was when she said that underneath anger is so often sadness. And I was angry at my co-founder for a million reasons. He had a million reasons to be angry with me or disappointed in me. And I just wasn't in a place where I was processing that in enlightened ways. And so the second part of the book is really a tip of the cap to him for mm -hmm. like taking the blame for what went down and being the one that left the company and doing so gracefully. And it's only in retrospect with the benefit of a decade of hindsight that I can see the story from his side, that I can process what it must have been like to work with me, to be working with someone that had untreated and unmedicated bipolar disorder, to be interacting with someone who had these mood swings and trying to figure out how to navigate that. I had no idea. I blamed him for everything because it was the easy and convenient thing to do. And only in retrospect do I now see myself potentially as the villain in the story. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. 
Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I just wanted to give a big shout out to another way that our ecosystem exists in the Wonder Mind world, which is our content hub, our website. So if you want to work on your mental fitness, because who doesn't, slash I know I do, make sure to visit wondermind.com where you'll find easy to understand articles that take the jargon and judgment out of mental health, expert-backed tips for improving your mental and emotional health, and exclusive interviews with actors, athletes, entrepreneurs, and more about how they're really feeling. Visit wondermind.com for mental fitness content that you won't want to miss. Now back to the show. I also want to talk about when Bonobos really started getting out there. And you talk about in these manic episodes and one of the side effects of bipolar disorder is oftentimes feeling like you are God. And so how did you balance that when you were essentially seen as God by your employees, by the media, by, you know, everybody, because you were the CEO of this huge brand? It was less the leadership of bonobos that led to some sense of delusion or of grandiosity. It was more what I thought then was the realization that all of retail was going to be effectively following our lead. That we got to see like the Warby Parker founders, Glossier, Harry's, Away. These are all people that came to meet with Brian and me to talk about how to build something. And so it felt like we were this little brand actually in the big scheme of things, but we were changing the way every brand was going to be built. And I can remember waking up one night in the middle of the night, it was like three in the morning. And I was like, oh my God, no one knows that this is coming for the whole trillion dollar retail economy. And like, I'm sleeping in a bedroom with 300 pairs of pants. This is our inventory <laughs> room. We have nine employees. And I was like, I know this is going to happen for the whole retail economy. And I like have this secret. And it leads to like drinking your own Kool-Aid. It leads to this sense of self-importance and messianism like that we see. You just can watch Netflix or Hulu now and you can see entrepreneurs run amok of their own vision. And the truth is that it's a very fine line between fantasy and reality. And this is why I love startups, because it's like the collision of fantasy and reality. And it's a very narrow subset of people that actually know how to walk that tightrope and manifest their fantasy without it being a mirage, without it being BS, without it being something where you raise all this money and then there's nothing left at the end of the day. And... Bipolar disorder is well-suited to that kind of a moment because you're wired for this upward ascent in mood where you become unmoored from the ground. It's in the wiring, which is why it's not at all surprising to me that the study out of the University of California at San Francisco who looks at entrepreneurship and mental illness shows that bipolar disorder might be 2 to 3% of the general population and index is 7 to 1 in entrepreneurs to say nothing of OCD, to say nothing of anxiety, to say nothing of ADHD, to say nothing of depression, the autism spectrum, Asperger's, that then becomes the journey. How does one dream big? And how does one seek to 
attract talent and capital, inspire others, change the narrative in the public markets, in PR, with potential partners, but still stay humble. Stay humble enough to work hard, stay grounded enough to be rooted in reality so that when things come up with mental fitness, you have the humility to be like, I need to take care of myself. If I actually want to be this change agent, I can't be off the ground. I can't be in bed all day. Change doesn't happen from the extremes, even if great ideas might come at the extremes sometimes. It's a tightrope. Fantasy and reality is a tightrope to walk. It definitely is. As an entrepreneur myself and as somebody who started with literally zero credentials, all of these things against me, it's like fake it till you make it. But that is such a tight line where it's like fake it till you make it to get people hyped up and excited, but like, don't fake your company. (laughs) There are some examples of where people faked it and made it and it was not a good thing. But in order for somebody to stand in front of hundreds of people who are literally dedicating their lives and their family's livelihood to you, you have to have some sort of optimism that everything's going to be okay, that even though you get punched in the face a hundred times a day, you're still going to make it. That's the difference between people who end up failing as entrepreneurs and people who don't. I mean, truly, I think the only reason why I became successful is because I was in survival mode. So with OCD and depression, I thought, I was the last person that was going to be successful. So very opposite to you. But I was like, I've committed myself to this. I am not a good student. No one's going to hire me. I just have to survive. And that's why I identify as a survivalist. It's really interesting because I think different mental health disorders help people in different ways. And now you are encouraging so many powerful people to be open so that People can say, wait, actually, all these people I admire are going through the same things I'm going through. 100%. Because we know this in the common culture, right? Every asset has a liability. Every greatest strength has a greatest weakness. And with mental illness, mental health issues, and creativity and performance, there is this interlocking relationship. And so the question becomes, How do I unlock my strengths, but protect myself and others from the shadows of those strengths? And like, let those strengths sing. Let's unlock the power of that, but not have it be debilitating. Minimize and mitigate the costliness of that so that you don't have to check under the bed 200 times before you go to sleep so that OCD doesn't take more than an hour a day or whatever the clinical diagnosis is. So that I think is the job. And that's why I'm so optimistic for the amount of money going into mental health tech, five years ago, it was $100 million. This year, it'll be over $5 billion. So we have 50 times the capital and therefore 50 times the talent. Wow, like what we can do societally with an open conversation, with investment, and with great talent. It does leave me feeling really optimistic. I would love for you to talk more about your book and your new company. Why did you decide to write this book? And would you have ever written it while you were still CEO of Bonobos? No way. I would not have had the bandwidth to write it while I was the CEO of Bonobos. I would not have had the benefit of hindsight and distance to go back and re-examine and look at stories that I had told myself that were still alive for me and taking the time to figure out which of those stories still feel true in retrospect, Mm -hmm. 
And which of those stories might be things that I told myself to protect myself? Which of those stories were things that I had told myself because I needed to raise capital and had to believe them? And that takes time and distance. And then in terms of like, why did I write it? I was just so tired of being ashamed. I felt like society had taught me because I didn't learn that from myself. Society taught me to feel ashamed of what I'd been through, of the psychosis, of the messianic delusions. Society taught me to feel like I was a blight or some kind of a human stain. I was bipolar. That's what I was taught. I was the illness that I had been diagnosed with. And 16 years later, as like a 36-year-old man with a great girlfriend who went through this with me, who became my wife and is now the mother of our child, with the benefit of a great therapist where I could process these experiences, with the benefit of family that had advanced through this, having been in jail and charged with a felony and having been behind bars where every single person was a man of color who was with me, every single person was black or Latino, knowing that they didn't have counsel standing by their side when they went before the judge the way that I did, vowing I would never forget those people. I had all these vectors of transformation that I had been able to access due to privilege. And I felt like if I don't write this book with all that privilege and the good fortune and the success, then who is expected to come forward? And I'm certainly not the first person, but when it comes to the business community and the startup ecosystem, There's only been a few people that have come forward. There are others, but it's time for us to come forward in droves because as founders and as CEOs and as leaders, we are in a position to be on the front lines of disclosure. Well, thank you so much. And if you want to give a quick shout out to Pumpkin Pie, what is it about and how can we find you? Pumpkin Pie is rooted in this realization that we bet too much of our happiness on romance. And romance is a difficult thing to control for. It's not so easy to just wave a magic wand and fall in love with someone who's a great partner. And for those of us who have been lucky to fall in love with a great partner, it's not like the solution to our life's woes. It becomes a part of your life and good and bad, right? And yet we have this thing, which is platonic friendship, which is scientifically shown to be our happiest state is when we're with our platonic friends. More so than in our romantic relationships, because over time, those take on obligation and duty and negotiation. It's a game of give and take. Or even as I now have a child, parent to child, it's not easy because you're trying to keep this person alive. You're trying to raise a human. But platonic friendship is this beautiful relationship where neurochemically we are at our happiest. Vulnerability is welcome, and there's no sense of obligation. It's a free market for human relationships. We've all had friends that have just gone away and they go away much easier than a breakup. And then if we're lucky, we have friends who've been with us for a long time. 100% of doctors agree that friendship is good for your mental health. We're thinking about mental health tech in a little bit of a different way, which is rather than focusing on what's right in front of us, like let's just be a great place where platonic friendships can begin. That's why we call it Tinder for friendship as like a simple way to think about it. And... The reason why this is hard to do, by the way, is that platonic friendship has two dynamics. Number one, um, default to vulnerability, so vulnerable disclosure. And then number two, unplanned, spontaneous, um, physical run-ins. Those are the two ingredients. 
And that's why no one's been able to crack this because it's hard to unplan a planned behavior through an app. It doesn't work as a typical thing. So there's like 10 different things we have to do right. And I can assure you that we're only doing like two of those right now. So that's why we haven't launched yet. We've got more work to do, but hopefully we'll be doing a push in New York in November of our beta. And then hopefully in the new year, we'll launch the app. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andy. You are such an inspiration. I can guarantee you that you are changing and saving lives through all of the work that you're doing. I really, really appreciate our conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Business of Feelings. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope this episode was helpful for you in some way. Whether you learned something new, became inspired to prioritize your own mental fitness, or just felt a little less alone about being a human who has feelings in this world, like we all do. Don't forget to subscribe to The Business of Feelings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want access to more mental fitness content, make sure to check out wondermind.com or sign up for our tri-weekly newsletter. I'll see you next time when we're back with another great guest being open and honest about their feelings as they build their empires. Our theme song is written and produced by John Levine and The Business of Feelings is produced by Wondermind Big Din Productions. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.